Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the spectator world. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by my colleague Amber Athey. And in the news today, we're going to be discussing the Canadian Trucker Rally, which has now entered, I believe it's coming up on its third week here. Uh, it began in British Columbia on the Canadian West Coast as trunkers who were upset about Canada's uh, vaccine mandates and other COVID restrictions rallied and crossed the country. Uh, they drove all the way to Ottawa, which is not quite on the East Coast, but pretty close. It's the capital city of Canada. And they've been occupying it now for over two weeks. Uh, they've been honking their horns. They've been uh, waving around signs uh, against Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the liberal who has imposed a lot of these restrictions. Uh, they've set up bouncy gyms. They've you know set up food stands, kiosks, and they've somehow managed to keep their truckers going, getting enough diesel fuel in and out of Ottawa uh, to keep this protest sustainable for the better part of two weeks. It's a really incredible story. Uh, it looks like it could be the start of a new Tea Party or a kind of conservative movement. We're seeing copycat protests now spreading to Australia, New Zealand, uh, France, Belgium, the United States. Uh, reportedly, there's one that's going to be coming up here in March. The truckers are going to be driving to Washington, D.C. from California. Uh, it, it's a really incredible story, Amber. And it's I, I think the biggest surprise at all is that this started in Canada, which is not usually the uh, focal point for rowdy right wing protests. Yeah, it's pretty surprising that the truckers would protest in this way because we're really used to seeing this type of behavior in the United States. But I think when you look at the specific COVID restrictions that have been going on in Canada for the better part of two years, it does start to make a little more sense because even with the strictest of of restrictions that we've had in more liberal enclaves in the United States, things in Canada have been so much worse. Um, There was a time last summer, for example, that Canada closed all of its golf courses um, as if they were somehow going to be major super spreaders of coronavirus. And they started instituting vaccine mandates nationwide well before the United States was. And this was basically seen to Canadians as a very understandable and unsurprising step. Whereas here in the United States, people were apoplectic over the idea as soon as it came out. And so when you consider the fact that we've already had anti-lockdown, anti-mandate, anti-vaccine mandate protests in the U.S., multiply that anger with the more aggressive restrictions generally in Canada. And this was sort of a powder keg ready to explode. There's admittedly for me a little element of schadenfreude here because the Canadian left liberal elite loves to look down their noses to the South, right? I mean, those stupid American hicks who take assault rifles to Radio Shack, not here in Canada. In Canada, there's political consensus and we're more progressive and enlightened. And, And that has translated over into the mandates, right? The idea has been that Canada has done well during covid uh, because they've locked down so much, because they've they've you know not allowed for really any kind of signs of life or any, any latitude when it comes to a lot of these restrictions. Uh, but but the problem is you can do that, but inevitably there's going to be a backlash, right? I mean, to me, the the biggest surprise here is only that this took this long, uh, because yes, you can stay home, you can watch Netflix all day, you can do your remote work like me and you get to do. We're very fortunate in that sense. But ultimately, even during a a pandemic, society has to keep running. It's dependent on, for example, people like truckers who 
deliver your food, who make sure that that Grubhub order that you just placed gets to your door. The same could be said for grocers, for delivery men. I mean, there's some people for whom life had to go on as usual. And for, you know, the, the first class of people to stand on top of the second class and to virtue signal about how terrific they are, how they're following the rules, how, you know, they're so much stricter in their COVID lockdowns, that can only go on for... Uh, for so long. And I, I think this, you know, translates politically over into the Canadian Parliament, where uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, the, the ridiculous blow dried, you know, Kennedy wannabe who's running that country right now, will not meet with the truckers. He will not talk to the truckers. He only is demanding that they leave on his timetable. The problem is they all have big rigs and those big rigs can block the road and those big rigs can't be towed. And you know, what is Trudeau going to do? Show up in blackface and scare them away? It's not a particularly uh, manageable situation. So I, I think this is a much more serious and potent political force, not just in terms of inspiring ideas, but possibly in terms of affecting change, too. Yeah. And I think, you know, generally Canada's response, particularly Trudeau's response, has been sort of a slap in the face to the truckers and very hypocritical because they have essentially said that the truckers are responsible for disrupting Canadians' lives. And the obvious response to that is, well, you want to disrupt the truckers' lives by forcing them to get vaccinated in order to drive their big rigs. And so they're not responding kindly uh, to that type of statement. And keep in mind that the people who are implementing these vaccine mandates are the same people who just a few months ago were saying things like, oh, well, we need to make Uh, the unvaccinated's lives as miserable as possible. And we basically have to socially engineer things so that they have no choice but to get the vaccine because otherwise they will be unable to participate in polite society. And now that these people have said the truckers are responding by disrupting society, all of a sudden that's problematic and they, they don't like it very much when the tables are turned against them. Um, because you do see a lot of media coverage talking about the way that the truckers have chosen to protest, the fact that roads are shut down, um, the fact that, of course, goods aren't getting where they're supposed to go. But it's almost a one-to-one response in how they were told to behave or how they were how the vaccine mandates were supposed to make them behave, which was to disrupt their lives as much as possible so that they would comply. Yeah, and one interesting thing that I found about Canada is that it's not like you might imagine where there's this vast frontier of a border and there's countless roads, like a, a latticework of roads running north and south. There's really only a few major roads in and out between the United States and Canada. One of them is between, the most important one is between Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan, currently blocked, at least halfway blocked by the truckers. Another one is between uh, the, the city of Coots, Canada and Montana. Uh, that one is also blocked by the truckers. So, you know, some real change happening here. <clears throat> it calls me back to the, the French Yellow Vest protests in 2018 when French truckers sent their big rigs to block major roads in France as well. And they were protesting a fuel tax. That fuel ta- tax was ended just a few days later. So, again, we don't want to discount the possibility of, uh, of real change here. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm curious because all this is happening kind of concurrently with some Blue state governors saying, okay, you know what, we are going to end the mandates now. And the same thing up in in some Canadian provinces. Okay, now is the time to step back. 
cases are plunging in the United States as spring finally comes, as the weather gets a little bit better now that the holidays are past. You know, I had COVID back in, in January. Uh, it was brought down during New Year's. I, I'm feeling better. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a story for a lot of people. But I bet the concern of the truckers seems to be that these laws are really about power rather than public health. And even as people feel better, they're not going to be rolled back. And so they feel the need to, to take a stand and do something. Yeah, it seems like uh, Canadian officials have dug in their heels a little bit more than uh, Democrats here in the United States who are reading the political tea leaves and seeing the midterms coming up and saying, OK, we realize now that this is very politically unpopular. And if we can start lifting some of these restrictions now, we can run on being the party that freed people from coronavirus and we saved everybody with the lockdowns. And since everyone was so good and complied, then we got to lift the veil, so to speak. But Canada, uh, in a lot of places, doesn't really seem interested in trying to follow that lead. They're really digging in even more aggressively. And as you alluded to, the science on pretty much everything related to COVID doesn't back up um, the idea of, of a vaccine mandate, which you know is certain to chap the truckers even more because, as we know, the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID. It doesn't stop you from spreading COVID. It basically just mostly reduces your chance of being hospitalized or dying. Um, so in that sense, it should be a personal choice because the whole point of a vaccine mandate is that you're trying to stop the spread of a, of a virus. And then uh, in terms of the lockdowns too, because I think that gets wrapped up into all of this, there's a study uh, coming out of uh, the UK, I believe, that found the lockdowns only reduced COVID deaths by about point. 2% overall, which is staggeringly lower than, than anyone predicted. We were told that the COVID lockdowns would save millions of lives. That didn't turn out to be the case. And so as we progress further into the endemic stage of this and find out more data that supports um, all of the people who were called conspiracy theorists, that adds a, an extra element of anger um, towards a, a government officials and public health officials, um, not just on the vaccine mandates, but generally on their overall response on public health policy to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, there was a study at Johns Hopkins, too, that found that it was a study of the study. So it's kind of a, a grander umbrella study. And it found that lockdowns did not make a difference. So this is kind of coming out. This is becoming a major you know, thing that people are considering, I think. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's really striking because we talk about COVID deaths all the time and supposedly how many lives were saved by these lockdowns. We don't talk about mental health. We don't talk about alcoholism. We don't talk about people who have lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods. We don't talk about um, all the, the people who were crammed into nursing homes in states like Michigan and New York as a result, a direct result of lockdowns, uh, many of whom died as a direct, as a result of that. You know, there's been no accountability for governors like Andrew Cuomo and Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, so it, it's it's this simplistic, narrow-minded, linear view of society, right? It attempts to take a very complex society and kind of wrap it up into a single thing, a single glob, and that is COVID. And huzzah, you know, Canada doesn't have as many COVID deaths as most of the rest of the world. That must mean that the lockdowns worked. Well, what about everything else, right? What have you done to your society? What permanent changes have you enforced on your society. I mean, I, I see people here in Old Town Alexandria, where I live, who are still walking around with masks on outside. Uh, their cloth, we know now that they don't really make that much of a difference, but 
they're still doing it. And you think, okay, at this point, this is more of a religious belief than anything else, right? This person's psychology has been changed. And you start to wonder whether this is really going to go away uh, once COVID ends. Yeah, I think there's going to be even more long-term effects to come that we find out about down the road, um, whether that's a rise in um, late stage cancer diagnoses because people weren't going to get their normal screenings or whether we see that children who had to wear masks in school for two years grow up with poor social skills or general uh, mental health and, and social development problems. There's still so much to be seen. And as you mentioned, that hasn't been accounted for. We also haven't even reckoned with the way that our data was counted um, because in terms of COVID deaths, for example, the CDC admitted recently that they haven't really distinguished between someone dying from COVID or someone dying with COVID, and that there were cases where people who were admitted to hospitals for other incidents and passed away had COVID listed as a cause of death on their death certificate, and that went towards the overall death count. There's a recent article in the Frederick News Post out of Frederick, Maryland, which is where I'm from, that said out of all of the hospitalizations for COVID currently in their um, hospital system, only 29% of them were actually people who were there to be treated for side effects from COVID. And the vast majority of them just happened to test positive when they went to the hospital for other reasons. So if that data holds across the United States, we're looking at a significantly different beast than we were led to believe at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I want to switch gears uh, for the last few minutes here to the Olympics because um, I will be the first to admit I haven't been following these. I, the last Olympics I really followed closely, and this is carbon dating myself, were the 94 <clears throat> Olympics with Nancy Kerrigan. I was cheering her on. I just don't really like, I don't know why. Like I like sports, you know, I watch the NFL religiously. I just don't really follow the Olympics, um, even though it's a, like a source of real nationalism and I should. Uh, but um I, the more that I hear out of this particular games, the, the gladder I am that I'm not following it, right? I mean, just the abuses that are occurring over there, uh, the reporters being hauled away by Chinese officials. And now uh, the cherry on top of the humiliation Sunday, this woman, uh, this athlete, Eileen Gu, who's American born, uh, but who has a very, very distant relation to China and who decided to go over to Beijing and compete for the Chinese team, and she won a gold medal, which almost just encapsulates everything that seems wrong with this particular Winter Games. Yeah, it's been a pretty scandal-ridden games um, across the board, and I think for anyone who was grappling with the idea of watching the Olympics, as I was, for example, I, I, I love the Olympics usually. I'm, I love that it combines sports and patriotism, um, or... Uh, any media outlets who have covered it. I think the good thing is that the coverage and people watching has exposed a lot of the wrongdoing on behalf of the CCP and how they've actually put on these games. Um, if not, uh, you know, in one instance, the way that they've been handling how athletes are supposed to quarantine when they test positive for COVID. There was a Russian athlete who was posting photos of some of the food that she was receiving in isolation um, American athletes have been warned to use burner phones so that the Chinese government can't track them while they're over there. Um, you have athletes who, after testing positive, test, testing negative for COVID, are still being required to stay in isolation for weeks and weeks. There's been allegations of cheating. 
And then as you brought up, there's this American-born athlete, Eileen Gu, who plans to attend Stanford and grew up in the United States, presumably still lives here full time, decided to go and compete for China. And she's become essentially this pretty face of propaganda for the Chinese Communist Party. They love her. Chinese state media loves her. Social media loves her. And she has conveniently not talked at all about the politics that's inevitably wrapped up in her decision to compete for China, even though she claims that she was doing it to you know, spread women's sports in China. This is a girl who has been really outspoken about her support of the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United States, claiming that she really cares about inequality and racial equity. But then she goes over to compete for China and, of course, has nothing to say about the Uyghurs. Uyghurs aren't black, so I don't understand why that would be a problem. But. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not hypocritical. <laughs> um, but she, and, and meanwhile, so many American media outlets are falling for this whole trap as if she is just like this super talented guru of sport, which, yeah, she's a good skier and she's very pretty. But that's sort of the danger because she presents this really fresh face and clean face to cover up a lot of the CCP's abuses. NBC is going on about her SAT scores um, and, and how amazing the tricks she's doing on the skis and failing to talk about all of the other baggage that is wrapped up in her competing for China. And if you want to see the dark side of her decision, um, if she hadn't won that gold medal, there's a figure skater by the name of Zhu Yi who was in the team event for China, also born in America, defected to the CCP, denounced her, renounced her American citizenship. She fell in both of her events in figure skating and ended up placing dead last in the short program. And she immediately received scores of hate on Chinese social media apps and burst into tears the second time that she fell because there was so much pressure on her and people were telling her to go back to America. So it's a very fickle thing when you decide to pledge your loyalty to this propaganda driven dictatorial regime uh, that the public opinion can turn on you in a second. And you're only valuable in how much uh, you can provide in terms of public image for the Chinese Communist Party. By the way, we should point out for any Chinese listeners who might be listening that we're currently kicking your ass in terms of medals, four golds and five silvers and one bronze for the United States, three golds, three silvers and zero bronzes for uh, the great rising empire over there in the East. So uh, sorry about that. Enjoy your, your scorn all you like. Um, <laughs> What, the only part of that I would disagree with that you that in your little spiel there, Amber, is when you said dark side and cover up, because what is so striking to me is that they're barely covering it up anymore. Right? I mean, this is sinister, blatant coercion, sometimes literally right on camera. I mean, it's sometimes done for the entire world to see. There isn't really any attempt to mask it anymore. You know, the, the, I, apropos to say that the mask has come off over in China and it just, you know, it does put you in the mind of another Cold War, right? It, it does put you in the mind of another ideological conflict because this is so sinister and so blatantly authoritarian. And and you wonder also what we can do about it because any pol American policymaker is going to be thrust into the difficult issue of, you know, what can you do about this? And, and I think that comes down to a simple decision, and that is, do you boycott the Olympics? 
and I'm torn on that. We've published some authors who said that we should boycott them. Jimmy Carter boycotted the Olympics in the Soviet Union back in 1980, and it was generally seen as a sign of weakness at the time, as a really feeble move that the you you know Kremlin did not immediately come crashing into the ground. Uh, I, I think that. China could very easily spin that into its own propaganda victory. You know, look at these Americans who are too weak to show up. But then, you know, sure, you can go to China. You can win more gold medals than they do. I mean, you can put a good spin on that. But you're also playing into that that propaganda victory at the same time, right? Because they're saying, look at us. We're putting on the greatest games there's ever been. It's difficult. I, I don't think that I would have boycotted them probably at the end of the day, but it's not an easy decision to make. No, it's not. And I don't think that there is, you know, a really perfect or good decision um, in this case. But I will say that there was one thing that the Biden administration could have done that it didn't do. It, of course, announced that diplomatic boycott. But I think an obvious other victory would have been, and you're laughing because, of course, a diplomatic boycott is totally toothless, but, um, I'm diplomatically boycotting this podcast right now. I'm still here. Like it's a total bullshit term. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but they had the opportunity to, um, ask or encourage U S businesses not to advertise at the Olympics and not to advertise on the media coverage of the games. And instead they took this little free market approach and they said, well, you know, we don't tell private companies what to do. Really? Because you seem to have plenty of opinions when companies were boycotting Georgia over its voting law. I mean, the idea that the Biden administration is somehow agnostic about how businesses choose to spend their money or how they choose to conduct their business is absurd. And so they are tougher on how businesses act in the United States over them spending millions of dollars in advertising and profiting off of a genocidal regime's uh, Olympics. So it that would have been, in my opinion, one of the easiest and most obvious ways to stick it to China, try to hurt them, you know, in their pocketbook at least, and also have this um, sort of PR victory of that's right, American corporations aren't going to deal with you anymore, but. They're too spineless, and ultimately, they're not these uh, champions of reshoring industry that they claim to be, I think. Well, China has better mail-in voting laws than Georgia does, so we have to give them credit for that. Um, (laughs) Do you think that... uh, So here's another thing that I'm torn about when it comes to these Olympics. Nancy Pelosi came out, and she made a statement she was widely ridiculed for, including on our site, that... Uh, the American Olympians should not try to speak out against the regime or make political statements. They should, you know, keep their voices down, focus on competition and win, you know, do things that way. Uh, again, she was she was dragged for it. And I can see how it would be interpreted as a uh, a statement of weakness. But at the same time, do they really have a choice? Right. Is, is that more just a statement of the obvious than anything else? It's we are this is a very evil, very authoritarian regime, and they don't seem to hesitate before you know, thumbing their nose at the world. I'm not sure that I would advise them to do any differently. Yeah, that's another sort of moral quandary, I think, because I was really surprised, for example, when that Russian athlete posted the photo of the food that she was receiving in quarantine, because my first thought was, oh my God, they're going to kill her. (laughs) Like, make make sure you're out of the country. That doesn't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Make sure you're home safe, maybe before you criticize the brutal regime that will not hesitate to 
take you to a re-education camp and make sure you're never seen again. But that being said, can you imagine what would happen if the CCP actually dared to touch an American athlete? I mean, I just don't think it would happen because they know that that is a, a suicide, essentially, both on the diplomatic stage worldwide, but also potentially militarily. The U.S. might get involved with force if they were to um, harm any of our citizens while they're over there for the Olympic Games. But at the same time, do you really want to take that risk? Do you want to call their bluff, so to speak? Um so I, I agree with you. I, I don't know what I would do if I were an athlete over there. And I certainly don't envy um, being in, in any of their shoes. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.